Welcome to Effortless Swimming, the podcast for swimmers, triathletes, and coaches. Join Australian swim coach Brenton Ford as he reveals the latest techniques and information to improve your swimming. Let's dive right in. Hi, Brenton Ford here. Welcome to the podcast today. My guest is Greg Deer, who is a performance consultant and a sports physiotherapist. He's currently serving at the Northern Territory Institute of Sport as a sports medicine coordinator. And Greg has over 15 years of clinical practice in various international and national sporting teams. And he's recently come back from the Shanghai Sports Institute in China. And on today's podcast, we talk about how flexibility impacts your swimming and your cycling, but how it can sometimes negatively impact your running. So it's an interesting one for triathletes to listen to. We also talk about how to get your training load up with easy sessions and why it's important as opposed to taking days off. So uh, another good one for triathletes as well as longer distance uh, swimmers. And we also look at how sleep impacts your performance and how he tracks that with his uh, developing athletes at the Northern Territory Institute of Sport. So listening to today's podcast, here is Greg Deer. I did a science degree at Melbourne University with the intention of going into veterinary science. And uh, the veterinary science course has a requirement that you do one year of a, an undergraduate degree in science and then make an application. And at the time, they were saying that you needed a, an average score of 75% across all subjects. And uh, I got a 74.9 and missed out. So I had a, another go at it the second year and got a 74.6 across all, average, all scores and and then fin- ended up going back to the third year of science and completing that and deciding that the entire degree that I'd done was in human health and that uh, I probably now prefer to go and use the skills that I'd learned, well, use the knowledge that I gained in a, a very broad human health area and uh, start to apply that clinically. So that's when I made the transition across to physio at Melbourne University. Did you come from a sports background now that you work a lot with athletes? Is that um, did you come from that, that background of sport and is that what kind of in, interested you into following that field? Very much so. I played so many sports as a young kid. Um, I played uh, cricket, Aussie rules. Uh, I did some distance running and I also represented the school in swimming and I rode my bike to work, uh, sorry, to school many days of the week and even with odd jobs would ride my bike. So um, I didn't ever compete in triathlon, but I was either swimming for school or riding my bike often or running, whether that be in uh, cricket or footy or just in distance work. I also played golf later on in, in secondary school and uh, then as an adult continued to play uh, some recreational sports, including track sprinting, um, where I made it to. I ran some professional events at Stall Gift and the Victorian professional circuit as well as representing Melbourne University at the Australian University Games in 400 metres. So quite a varied background. And now you're working a lot with uh, developing athletes and um, you've worked with athletes that have been more in the high performance end. So what are some of the, I guess, challenges for you or opportunities that you have now that you're working with those who are maybe not at the peak but are working their way up there? Uh, I think the biggest opportunity um, which comes with challenges and rewards is to to introduce the concepts of high performance uh, practices that occur in a daily training environment and apply those uh, to developing athletes who hadn't yet worked out that 
some of these small changes would make big differences to their ability to recover and their ability to um, back up every day to the type of demands that they need to do. The other challenge would be that they're balancing school and social pressures of being a teenager and that definitely affects their ability but most of the kids that I work with have shown uh, a sense of sporting maturity to, to already deal with that and to develop a daily training environment of uh, key, key rules, if you like, gives them some grounding when they do feel that social pressure to be doing other things. So by that you mean um, giving them a couple of um, having having the the sort of rules set down for them so that they um, so it just becomes habit for them to maybe not look to go out on a Friday night instead they're ready to train on a Saturday morning or is it is it that sort of thing I mean I remember when I was growing up training pretty much full time in swimming and it was like Friday night never go out because we always train Friday night and train Saturday morning so. Um, you know, as you're going 16, 17, 18, all, all your friends are going out, it was very yeah. rare that you'd actually um, you know, be going to those parties, but you'd be shown that, you know, it's, it's, you're better off actually developing yourself as a person and as a sports person as well and, um, and sticking to that habit of, um, that habit of training. Um, and you get a lot more out of that than you do out of uh, just going out and partying. I think you're right. I think conceptually the kids have already got that and they're being told that by... Uh, people that are pulling them in different directions that in the long run that they will be better if they uh, stick to doing the right thing. But one of the things that really helps them is to give them uh, very, very clear ways to do that. And so, for example, we do suggest that they get a minimum of nine hours sleep and that not getting nine hours sleep uh, could in fact be one of those things that we would say, I'm not going to train you today. I'm definitely going to reduce the volume or the intensity of training today because uh, children really should be getting nine to 11 hours of sleep. And if they haven't even got the minimum, then um, to, to place stimulus into that developing athlete, you're going to be doing so on a neurological system which is not ripe for stimulus and therefore is not going to give you the adaptation. And if you don't get adaptation, then all you get is compensation and compensation leads to um, malfunction and weakness and soreness and all those types of things. So it's about giving them practical things like we really need to see nine hours sleep and one of the ways that we help them to keep on track is that each day they would complete a monitoring questionnaire. Now that could be done by a smartphone app um, which is a medium technology service. At the Institute of Sport we have a high technology service which is a, uh, a smarter base that they can use through their smartphone uh, or, in fact, in the early days, we would just use a piece of paper, a Word document, and it would have, can you tell me what time you went to sleep, what time you woke up? We would extrapolate how many hours of sleep that was, and we would ask them to take a photo on their phone and just send that to us. And it was, if they didn't send it to us, we'd just send them a text message and say, hey, can you let me know how your sleep was last night? We would take that very specific way of helping them to stay on track with their life and Add to it things like, can you tell me um, what the quality of your sleep was between one and five, where five is very, very good and one is not so good, and how rested do you feel, what is your willingness to train, and can you tell me about your soreness? And those questions there would give them an opportunity to send some numbers into us, and fours and fives we're really happy with, ones, twos, and threes we're not, and we would 
perhaps get them in and say, hey, is there anything that we can help you with to see if we can get those numbers up? And let's talk to mum and dad about your after-hours commitments um, and let's see if we can rearrange so that you're getting that sleep because, in fact, if you look at some of the training results that you're getting, they do seem to dip when we see those numbers get into the three, two, and the one. And it's nice conceptually to talk to developing athletes about what are the right things to do, but when you have a, a daily record that we just say to them, hey, how do you feel? How was your sleep? How rested are you? Um, you know, if you had to be honest, do you really feel willing to train today? And, you know, when you get a kid who genuinely loves their sport and they tell you that they give you a score of three out of five and three means I could take it or leave it, you really need to sit down with that person and say, is there something going on that we can help you with? Um, and that's really about shaping the specifics of doing the right thing. Yeah, I like that. It's a really good way of doing it. And we've used logbooks in the past. Um, this is before smartphones. But um, just actually having those numbers on paper and having even just having the athletes think about it, um, think about how they're feeling, their soreness and all that sort of stuff. It, um, you know, it, not a, I mean, outside of, say, develop, developing um, sports people is you don't often think about it and you don't definitely don't quantify it with a, a number like that. So it's a, um, a good way to keep track. And I mean, especially kids who are growing up, teenagers, they might have, say, girl problems or problems at school or at home. And um, if you've got that kind of relationship as a, a physio or a coach and you can actually talk to them about that and get them to um, get them to express why they may not be at 100%, um, you know, that, that way you can really help them uh, work out those, those sorts of problems. Have you... I agree. And the, sorry, there's a... My athletics coach at University of Melbourne had a, he had a motto for, you know, and you, if you think about the athletes that he was training, they were first, second, third, fourth year university students in the peak of their social prime. And he just said, look, if you're going to play, play hard, I need you to train hard as well. And that gives you the license to understand that I'm still going to call on you to do the work that you need to do to achieve the athletic goals that you want. Even if you've been out the night before, um, I'm still going to be putting that work into you. So you can do that work feeling terrible or you can do that work having recovered and regenerated properly. One of the other things that he said to us was that every training session is a preparation for the next one. And we can use that same analogy for every night's sleep is a preparation for how you will act tomorrow. And every uh, social event is going to affect your training tomorrow. And it's not a restrictive paradigm. It's not saying absolutely you cannot. But be prepared that we're going to help you work out how that affects you the following day so that you can make that decision based on sound information. So... I, th I think they respect that because it gives them that little bit of latitude that that they want and at the same time they can genuinely look you in the eye when you ask the question, so was that a good idea, do you think? And they can say, they can they know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. It does develop them and they can go in the direction that, that they want um, as opposed to being dogmatically held down <laughs> a rigid schedule. So Yeah, that's good. Uh, and I think you see it as well with, say parents who are uh, who are very strict with their kids and don't allow them to um, make their own choices and decisions um, whereas sometimes those kids are more likely to um, go off the rails so to speak whereas the parents who allow their 
their, their kids a little bit of freedom and to make their own decisions and choices and ultimately pay the consequences if they're not great decisions. Um, but, you know, they still guide them and all that sort of stuff. It's, um, you know, they're often the kids who, who can learn from their mistakes rather than just, uh, say, going against what their, their parents say. And I've seen that with, uh, with friends and um, also just with, with parents of, of kids um, who are growing up in, in suing is you've, yeah, giving them the, um, the opportunity to make those choices for themselves um, is what really help them, helps them develop. And that's part of being a good coach is, is looking outside of just their training program but also at the person um, because you can't remove the two of them. When we do monitor the athlete's training load, um, whether it's an event-specific monitoring uh, such as just the swimming in triathlons, for example, or whether it's the, the total training load of all three events, we you know ask them what their session or rating of perceived exertion is and they give us a number between 0 and 10 and we multiply that by the training time or we multiply it by the the distance covered in the pool and that gives us a sessional load and we track that and we know that when that uh, produces a stress which is above a certain threshold and we have these thresholds marked and we can sit down with the athlete and say, you know, you gave me a rating of 6 on the RPE scale for that session and uh, it was a 60-minute session, and that gave us 360 points. Well, 360 points uh, happens to push you over that threshold, and we're okay with that because it's a, there's a time to push you. But if you stay above that threshold for three days, the chances of you getting sick are significantly higher. So one of the ways that we see an athlete with a planned training program suddenly spike their training load is when a session that they would normally rate as a five or a six is suddenly rated as a seven or eight. And those are really clear signs that somebody has slept poorly um, or is undernutritioned or hasn't recovered from a previous training session. So one of the ways we do help them is we sit down and we look at what our session is planned out and how it's tracking and whether it's sitting into the, the right zone that uh, is going to stimulate them to get better but not push them so far over the edge that they crash and burn. So, again, that's just another simple way that we use a, a deliberate monitoring to help them stay on track. And then they, if they choose to go out on a Friday night, we will expect them to still train on a Saturday and we're going to see that show up in their sleep hours and their training uh, rating of perceived exertion and that's going to affect their training and they're, they're not going to want to do it very often. Um, but we do give them some leeway if there's a birthday on and we just say, well, you've still got training plans, so... It's really your choice. And you did a good video about that on your, your Facebook page just a couple of weeks ago. So I'll make sure that we link to that in the, the show notes for people that want to um, yeah, see, a, see a really good example of it. And in that video as well, you talk a lot about um, the just doing getting your, your miles up with easy sessions to, yes. uh, to help that sort of base fitness. So can you talk a little bit more about that, especially how it relates uh, for triathletes? Okay, certainly, and and I've just uh, before I uh, came on the call this morning, I was just uploading a, uh, a second version of that same video, but it was much more specific to multi-sport and then specifically in triathlon. And I had populated eighteen weeks of of data into a into a mock program, and we could watch how that panned out. Um, and it's a much more tidy version, so we'll probably uh, link back to that one. Yeah. But the easy sessions. One of the things that I did notice is that during the taper, 
of a triathlon phase where there's a taper for all three swimming, running, and, and bike work, the, at the end of 18 weeks, the taper actually caused the athlete to drop below a critical threshold of training stress, and that means that the, that the taper actually caused them to lose fitness. And that's not what we want in the taper. We definitely want them to gain freshness but not lose fitness. And one of the ways that we can hold up uh, the fitness without causing the person to lose freshness is to do those easy sessions. And an easy session is, is money in the bank, really. Uh, when you have a day where there is no training on, that day is counted as a training load of zero. And a zero, if you were to have, say, seven days of training with an average <coughs> load of 200, I'm just using an arbitrary unit here, uh, seven 200s is 1,400 divided by seven, the average is 200. Now, if you had a triathlon program where there are three riding sessions that week, then, and you, and you were rate that, rating that session as a 400, well, three 400s is 1,200, but you're dividing that now by seven, which is a little under 200. So the average training load for that individual on the bike happens to be a little under 200, even though each session is 400. And when you start to have a training load which is much lower than each session, it genuinely will affect you come race day. And one of the ways to prop that up is to be doing something on other days, and that's the beauty of triathlon. But if you're having days of nothing and you, and you are completely shutting down, that's necessary sometimes for regeneration. But you can still add fitness to your program by doing an easy session which might be for example a walk for an hour to an hour and a half now that's 60 to 90 minutes with an rpe of one or even half and that's going to add 60 to 90 points to your fitness because it genuinely is use of your cardiovascular system and genuinely is stress on the joints and the ligaments and the tendons that are relevant to running it's a significantly lower stress but it is still specific to ambulation. And those, that's a great example of doing an easy session is just getting out for a walk. If you were to do that on the bike or in the pool, then that's what the spinning days on the bike are for or the pool session, which is just really turning the, day, turning the arms over. And a lot of people have question the value of those because they don't push fitness. And that training video does talk about the, the value of it because it does prop up your long-term fitness yeah, and uh, I mean, especially in swimming, if you look at the the high performance swimmers, they're training usually between eight to ten sessions a week. It depends on on who they are, but with a lot of those sessions, because you obviously can't push really hard every every session, they they look like they're they're swimming very lazily. They're just uh, you know, swimming up and down, doing skull and kick, but not really putting much effort into it. But as you said, they're the they're the sessions that that push up the training load, um, but they also allow you to re recover. So um, for my athletes, I mean, we try and you know, at least get one of those sessions in a week where you're not pushing hard, you're just looking to feel good, relax, and uh, and work on some of those skills as well. So it's, um, uh, yeah, and, and even though you may not feel like you're getting a lot out of it, it's um, it's not about bumping the fitness up. It's about um, keeping that, that training load up, but also working on the, the technical um aspects of the of the stroke as well perfect. yeah perfect combination and one big response that i got from that video was how 
the train load monitoring was able to graphically represent the value of an easy session. And for those people, we can, we can conceptually say to them, it is really important that you get in there and just go through the skills and uh, just turn the arms over. But do you know what? If we don't enter this data because you don't do the session, let's have a look at how that affects your chronic training fitness. And you can see that that does drop. And if you extrapolate that to three months' time, there's a certain uh, decrease in fitness that you missed the opportunity to uh, to stave off by not doing those easy sessions. So graphically, it definitely helps them see the value of that. Yeah, and one of the uh, triathletes that um, who features in our Art of Triathlon swimming video course is uh, Clayton Fatale, and he's he's one of the quickest swimmers in triathlon. And I mean, he he's happy to substitute a, a surf in with one of his sessions um, because yeah, you know, he might be out there for say two hours. Um, and he's not really getting his heart rate up a lot, but that's yeah. um, that's again just another way to um, get one of his easy swim sessions in. So and and you know we're totally totally fine with that because that's um, that that works for him. It's, it's worked for me, and um, just another way to mix things up, like going for a walk instead of going for a run, or um, you know going for a ride down to the shops and and back instead yeah. of um, taking the car. Taking, you know, for those athletes that have got children, taking a Taking a child in the shower for a walk, um, you know, if you're out for three quarters of an hour, that's 45 minutes, and if you've got any hills in there, you're probably going to get an RPE of a one or a two, and there's a little bit of money in the bank for you. If you take a dog for a walk down the park and you throw the ball and you chase after the dog a little bit, if you rated that, you know, that's intermittent running of a low intensity and a low duration, and yet it can contribute to your training load and can definitely make a much more accurate picture of uh, – uh, where you're at, if you're going to chart it. And if you're not going to chart it, then just take our word for it that it's definitely valuable to do those easy sessions. Yeah, definitely agree. Now, let's, um, one of the things that you mentioned before we uh, before we got on the, the podcast was um, about the the role that drag plays uh, drag plays in in swimming and cycling, and um, where you know how the percentage of uh, that the drag accounts for um, compared to the increase in power that you need to um, to get that in, increase in speed. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about that with um, with what sure. most athletes should focus on? Sure. So, look, the determinants of success in triathlon are increasingly related to speed. You know, the triathlons that are much more common often come down to the kick and that can be uh, whether it be in running or whether it be in the bike and having to make up some distance um, or in the swim. To get a 10% increase in velocity, 10% increase in speed, you can either decrease your drag by 30% or you can increase your power by 30%. Now, I know which one's easier to do. That's to decrease the drag by 3%. When swimming, decreasing your drag means having a much more streamlined position. Now, streamlined position is not something that you can intuitively feel when you're in the water. And because we intuitively feel it accurately, you know, we, we see that maybe we are, but we're not very accurate at doing so, the, the number one way to decrease your drag to increase the flexibility of shoulders and the thoracic spine, which is the spine from the base neck through to the lower back and your hips and your ankles. So having that 
mobility available in your ankles, hips, thoracic spine and shoulders gives you the mobility required to achieve a streamlined position. <clears throat> and if you achieve, pardon me, <clears throat> if you achieve a streamlined position, you've automatically reduced the drag compared to if you had not as much flexibility in those areas. On the bike, you can, you can imagine that as you present your body and your frame to the wind, the greater the surface area that it presents, the more wind drag that you've got. So getting into the time trial position is the preferred position, and rightly so. But to be able to get down there requires that you can uh, flatten your spine out. So again, it's the thoracic spine mobility that's very important. And being able to get over the, uh, the thighs so that you can be in a lower position, again, represents that reduced drag. So in real terms, the science says reduce your drag and that will give you an advantage over increasing your power. And not many amateur athletes these days have got either the time or the opportunity to do intensive training in the gym that increases their power very significantly. But everybody, I think, can do mobility work through the, the spine. And that takes a little bit of assistance professionals or uh, through their experience. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, so it's just breaking up a little bit um, with the connection there. But um, I mean, with with our athletes and in all the clinics that we do, we always cover just uh, a couple of stretches, three, four, or five of the most important stretches that um, that we feel make the biggest difference for um, for swimmers or for swimming, especially with um, triathletes coming into swimming. Um, whereas they may not have the natural flexibility that someone who's swum from a young age might have. Um, but we give them a, a couple of um, stretches that can really help them open up through their shoulders, their thoracic spine, um, and also you know, a little bit through their, uh, their hip flexors just so they can improve their body line in the water. And uh, Bob Bowman, who's Michael Phelps' coach, he's, he said the number one, the, the very first thing he focuses on when he's working with someone is their body line, so where they're sitting in the water because of that um, that correlation between um, you know a three percent reduction in swimming drag or a thirty percent increase in power. So um, always go for that um, the easy win, which is the the reduced drag. So um, and as you said, it's about finding that minimum amount of mobility uh, for for triathletes so that they can uh, express that power. You're right, and I think one of the real challenges for triathlon is that the mobility that you get if you're a very talented swimmer, it's often because you are born hyper-flexible. Um, if you're a very talented bike rider, that's often the case as well, that you just get into a good position naturally. It turns out that the mobility that many good swimmers have and many good cyclists have doesn't work for them when it comes to running. And that's one of the real challenges of triathlon is getting the, the balance right between mobility and then stiffness that you need to make use of the springiness in your tendons for running. Um, I think if you looked at the, the, the weight of experience, most people are way too stiff because of the volume of training that they've done and it's caused their bodies to suffer the effects of training. And if you have to stiffen somebody up or loosen them up, you would get more benefit by loosening them up than you would by stiffening up. That doesn't apply to running, but it does apply to the other two legs, uh, the bike and the swimming. One of the Olympic coaches who we've had on the, the podcast, Bobby McGee, he said that with his triathletes or with his runners, he'll never have them stretch their hamstrings just because um, there's 
you know, they've found a correlation between p- performance in running and the tightness of their hamstrings. So that was that was interesting to me that you know that they that they don't stretch those out. I mean, as a swimmer, you're always looking to be as um, you know, to be quite flexible through there. But um, like you said, trying to find that balance between um, flexibility for the bike and the and the swim, and then you know you need to be a little tighter for the run. So it's um it's it's about being in in the right uh, range, I guess, for your your flexibility there. Yeah, and being in the right range is the key word there. There are certain people that need stiffness, and certain people that need to give up some stiffness, and uh, and that's definitely one of the important things. Now, if you had tight hamstrings, and that can definitely work against you on the bike, particularly as you have to lean over, uh, it can increase the tension on the lower back much more than it needs to. So I think it's an individualised approach uh, is the one that works best. Yeah, and that just needs some, some, some good coaching to work out whether somebody's way too loose or way too uh, stiff. And then with uh, in, in relation to swimming, so what sort of uh, strength exercises would you have your triathletes or your swimmers do um, to prevent any sort of injury um, through the shoulders? Uh, that's a really good point. I think that strength is not the key component in shoulders in swimming, but it's the ability to uh, achieve a streamlined and a person achieve a streamlined position, as we mentioned, um, is going to have more drag, and that causes them to work harder. And when they work harder uh, for the same distance, and that puts way too much stress, and that's when injuries occur. So strength is not the limiting factor in in swimmers with a a shoulder problem. There is one great exercise that people could probably use here. It's called a reach, roll, and lift. And it's done where the athlete is on, their, on all fours, uh, almost in a child's, uh, child's pose position where the, the head is on the ground and the chest is over the thighs and the arms are straight out in front of the athlete. And they're asked to reach the hand along the floor and then rotate the hand so that the palm is facing the ceiling and then lift the arm off the ground. It's an excellent indication whether somebody's got both mobility in their thoracic in their shoulder and whether they've got strength in the shoulder girdle muscles, not necessarily the big deltoids and the, the lats, but in the, in the ones that provide stability between the shoulder blade and the spine. It's a great exercise to tell us whether that is working very well. Uh, so that's called a reach, roll, and lift. And uh, that needs to be done after somebody has got the mobility. So if you're trying to do a reach, roll, and lift or improve your ability to do that the number one thing you can do is get mobility back into your thoracic spine and shoulder girdle first yeah that's good one of the probably the main uh flexibility tests that we do with our athletes when they come to a clinic and we've also got it in our art of triathlon swimming video is uh it's called the combined elevation test just to check for that it's basically checking that that same sort of thing and um we have the athletes lie on their front, uh, chin on the ground, hands out in front of them, and they link their thumbs together with their arms straight, and they have to lift up as high as they they can. And when with the athletes at the clinic, no, 90, 80, 90% of people um, can't get past five degrees uh, yep. off the ground. Um, but with um, with the physios that we've worked with and, um, uh, and, and their work with swimmers and triathletes, 95% of uh, high-performance athletes um, can get to at least 20 degrees there. And most of the elite swimmers are usually around sort of 30, 40 degrees 
uh, or so. Um, and I mean, triathletes don't necessarily need to get to that much, but even 15 degrees with that test is um, just really allows them to get into their high elbow position out the front. And it takes a lot of pressure off their shoulders when they're uh, looking to improve their stroke. And it just allows them to get into the right position because you know, if you're only getting to zero or five degrees with that test, then it's going to be very difficult to um, to have a, a really good position in your catch and pull through. I would absolutely agree with that. And when I look after young swimmers coming with shoulder pain, inevitably that's one of the things that is showing up. And when we change that, through appropriate treatment, then the shoulder pain significantly goes down or, in fact, goes away. So it's a very good marker of whether somebody is being set up for shoulder pain um, or whether they are likely to be not impinging that shoulder. Yeah, and it's um, and it just makes a huge difference as well. One of the uh, guys who we had come to our clinic sometime last year, he was at around five degrees with that test. And then two or three months later, he came back to the clinic again. He was at around 15 degrees with it. He'd, he'd worked on it. And, um, and we did a timed 50 freestyle at the end of the clinic. And he was down around a, a 30 or a 31. And I think his best before that was something like a, a 34. Now, he, he might not have had um, a good hit out um, you know, in, in the last couple of weeks or anything like that. But um, even just that improvement with his flexibility there allowed him to get a pretty decent PB with his, his 50 freestyle. And, I mean, that's not the only thing that contributed to it, but that played a big part, especially with someone who's quite stiff through the, the shoulders there. With um, that's, a classic, that's a classic example of reducing the drag by achieving a streamlined position and increasing the velocity through the water without necessarily increasing the strength by 30%. So that's a good case example of that being the case. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I know... Um, uh, Mitch Patterson, who's he's a uh, he's a butterfly. He's working on. Uh, he's looking to go to the Rio Games next year. That's what he's training for. He um, was telling a story of um, uh, oh, names escape me now. Um, <laughs> uh, Springer, Springer, the uh, the breaststroker. He's um, he was uh, struggling to get under the minute for uh, for the hundred breaststroke for a long time, and then. He, I think his, his streamline position wasn't as good as it could have been. And he was saying, just like you were, you can either reduce the drag by 3% or you can increase your power. So he went for the, the better position in the water and, um, and now he's been one of the, the quickest breaststrokers that Australia's had for a very long time. So, um, so yeah, just, just working on that flexibility makes a huge difference. And especially working with the swimmers and triathletes that we do, a lot of them are between sort of 25 to, say, 50, 55. So they're all adults and generally pretty tight. Um, and a lot of them struggle to get into uh, even just getting that, that one hand on top of the other in the streamline position. So, um, And then when you, when you get them to be able to do that and push off the wall in that streamline position, um, they, they can save a second to two seconds just off their push off the wall um, by, by having that flexibility. So it's, it's one area that's missed, I think, by um, a lot of uh, age group triathletes and swimmers. Well, I agree entirely. And I think one of the best analogies that we can use with, with uh, people who have a genuine resistance to addressing these mobility problems is to think about when a race car goes around a track, it's going to go significantly faster if you take the hand off from the very start. You can put your foot down as much as possible. Break on. 
fixes to address the handbrake. And mobility problems, flexibility problems, are literally handbrakes in your system. And it doesn't matter how hard you train if you have all these handbrakes in your system. And, and regaining mobility is ways to achieve a long drag position, increase your speed, as you've given some nice examples of. Yeah, absolutely. Now, where can um, where can people find out more about you and um, watch some of those videos that we spoke about earlier and um, and continue to learn more about um, the type of training, the type of um, uh, work that you're doing with um, with age group athletes? That, but I think a lot of it really relates to um, to, to adults as well. So, where can people um, get in touch with you and find out uh, more about you? Well, when I was in my last year, I started to increase the the traffic of the volume of uh, videos um, on my own channel, and there is an idea there that more relevant to um, women's handball, which is obviously a running and contact sport that does involve a shoulder work, and so there is some carryover there. Uh, the current training load monitoring video that I am soon to upload specifically for triathletes that will go on my YouTube channel as well. Um, it's not predominantly where I direct people to. I will embed those videos into uh, either my Facebook page, which if you just look for Greg Day, D-E-A, uh, Sports Physiotherapist, you'll be able to see um, all of that history. There's articles in there as well that are not always about triathlon, but they're often about uh, running-related sports and um, conditioning. So probably the Facebook page is the one that generates the most Traffic. I have recently started a new site uh, called Prepare to Perform, and that will get some of the same content um, that we predominantly set up to uh, provide a hub for uh, workshops that I deliver in future, as well as programs that I deliver here in Darwin for uh, pre season uh, footballs. So there's a few links there the Facebook page, the professional page. Now uh, that will have some of YouTube videos uh, and that content will grow predominantly by request and also depending on the athletes that I am working with and what triggers uh, a topic for me to write about. There's currently two articles published on Breaking Muscle magazine, uh, which is uh, www.breakingmuscle.com. And uh, there's another two or three in the pipeline over the next few months. So that's another one that I will often link back to on my Facebook page. So. Awesome. We yeah, we've had uh, a mutual friend Andrew Reid on the the podcast who, um, who yeah, he provides a lot of content at uh, Breaking Muscle as well, and um, yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of great uh, great ideas and uh, and great articles that y- yourself and Andrew um, are putting out there. So it's uh, it's uh, great to have that those kind of resources available. So uh, Greg, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's uh, been fantastic, and uh, make sure we link to all those sites in our show notes at effortlessswing.com and uh, again thanks for, for being a part of the podcast my pleasure thanks very much for inviting me thanks for joining us on the Effortless Swimming Podcast to get transcriptions bonus videos and to be the first to hear about new episodes go to swimmingpodcast.com 